You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. Hello, I'm Michelle Isles, and on behalf of the National Climate Emergency Summit, welcome. This is our feature event, and we're glad to have so many of you here tonight. This, the event, the summit was opened today by Uncle Dave Wandon. We honour the sovereignty and the contribution of Woiwurrung Wurundjeri elders, past and present, on whose lands we meet today. And what a day. We've had unprecedented engagement here in Town Hall, across the road, and online across the nation. This unprecedented engagement is, of course, appropriate for the unprecedented climate emergency that we are facing. So thank you to all of you that have been part of discussions today, of bringing forward uh, the solutions, of calling out the truth about the challenge um, that we're facing, and thank you for the actions that you'll do uh, following this summit. This is not a drill. That's our topic for tonight's discussion. We need a climate emergency response. And tonight we have an expert panel, as you can see, with the diversity and strength of leaders from across Australia to plunge into a not-so-hypothetical uh, thinking around what's trying to see what is possible, making seemingly insurmountable challenges happen. So, like I said, we have the expertise here tonight. They'll be covering the political, economic and social spectrum of action that we need to see. And you're in good hands tonight because our moderator is... Ali Moore, uh, you will know her because she's had 25 years experience as a journalist and broadcaster with the ABC, Australia's Nine Network, and for the BBC's Global News Network based in Singapore. She's covered major news and current affairs across the region. Her previous roles as correspondent and late night current affair, as late line, as anchor of some of the country's key business news programs makes her well equipped to address us tonight. Ali is a former Vice-Chancellor Fellow at the University of Melbourne, a position held for two years during which she produced This Is Not A Drill. So she's going to lead us in a terrific and dynamic discussion uh, tonight, of which you will be a part when you answer your terrific questions. So welcome, thank you, and I'll be back. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this. It is, I want to emphasize, a hypothetical. Essentially, we are playing a game, but uh, as you've all been hearing today, it will become very apparent that the elements of our game are not really that far removed from reality. So to introduce you to our wonderful panel who have agreed to play, at the end there, Karen Phelps is former head of the Australian Medical Association and also former member of federal parliament. Uh, to her right, Greg Mullins, former New South Wales Commissioner of Fire and Rescue. Moving along the panel, Lydia Thorpe, activist and former MP in Victoria. In fact, Lydia was, of course, the first Indigenous member of the Victorian parliament. Uh, Oliver Yates, former and first CEO of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Paul Gilding, climate analyst and business consultant and former head of Greenpeace. Ian Dunlop is former chair of the Australian Coal Association. 
Carmen Lawrence, you would know, former West Australian Premier and now a social academic. And here's Cheryl Durrant, former Director of Preparedness and Mobilisation with the Australian Defence Force. Please join me in welcoming our panel. Well, it has been, as you all know, a long, hot, devastating summer. Yesterday, four emergency warnings were issued for huge blazes inland from the coast. 90 kilometre winds fanning the flames, the mega blaze now covering close to 800. Threatening to merge into one large blaze. The ring of fire around Sydney is as angry and For the as first time since 2003, seen. a state of emergency has been declared across the ACT. More than 80,000 head of livestock have been confirmed dead, with that number expected to rise. As the monster from the Blue Mountains roared down the rain. It could be weeks before the threat is finally extinguished. We were warned of catastrophic conditions and right now there are seven fires burning at emergency level. Fire crews have worked through the night to try to contain a major bushfire in the New South Wales snowy Manero region, which has destroyed multiple properties. While the damage is being assessed, they're still trying to prevent more damage coming today and tonight. Around 1.3 million hectares of land has so far been scorched here in Victoria. There has never been a deployment of emergency service workers this large ever before. 20,000 people are tonight in the path of the mega fire rolling down the Blue Mountains into the town of Lithgow. The scale of this bushfire emergency is hard to get your head around. But as if any of you in the room needed reminding, it has been a horrific few months. And here in Victoria, the Premier is feeling the pain. His annual pilgrimage to East Gippsland was cancelled because of the fires, and he spent the past few weeks counselling distraught families and visiting devastated communities. Thinking it would be light relief, the Premier also decided that he would listen to Barnaby Joyce's new podcast, but how wrong he was. That left him feeling not just depressed, but also quite angry. So our Premier thought Canberra is merely fiddling while Rome burns. I'm going to take action into my own hands, and let's see if the states will act if the feds won't. So our Premier hits the phones. He calls every counterpart, every state and territory Premier to see who will join him in forming an Emergency Safe Climate Commission, a commission that he wants to task with coming up with the best and fastest way of solving our problem, and a commission that he hopes will create the right amount of momentum to lead to national change. Ian Dunlop, you're tapped to head this commission. You're incredibly pleased that someone can see how good you are at selling this message. So what is your sales pitch? How do you convince these rival states and territories to come on board? Well, that's, that's a bit of a worry. My wife keeps telling me I should be retired, so I guess we better get it out of the way before I get into even bigger trouble. I think 
really the first thing we would have to start doing um, is set a few conditions at the beginning. The first thing we need is the fact that if we're going to have a commission and to get people committed, we need an in independent mandate that we can actually really explore the issue without the sort of constraints that has been put on a number of other inquiries previously. If we're going to do it, it's got to be done properly. The results have got to be uh, transparently released around the community. And we don't want uh, the final conclusions essentially to be hushed up. Well, so I think that's absolutely critical. So critical is an independent mandate. I have to say, of course, we're moving quite quickly here because this is an emergency. And the Premier is so impressed with your immediate call for independence and the fact that that's how you see this should be run. He actually tasks you with appointing all of the commissioners. So you go through your contact book and uh, before too long, you have a full house. You are all commissioners in our safe climate commission, which means, Ian, you can tap Paul for your sales pitch to the premiers. Ian's telling the premiers that he wants it to be independent. Paul, what's your sales pitch? Why should they join? Your economy in every state is under serious risk now. And if you don't get on board with a solution, you're going to be left behind. We are going to have to transform the economy at emergency speed. You can be part of that future, or you can just go and become a rogue state um, and, and go into decline and be part of the problem. And as a result, your people will lose. Your people will miss out on the funding. Your people will miss out, and you'll be unelected. And that's the best sales pitch to a politician. OK, the economy, there's a good sales pitch. Cheryl, of course, uh, a lot of government, state and federal are very worried about national security. Uh, this has got to be, surely, the biggest national security threat there is. I would just point out, is that working? Point out that the Defence Force does actually have to follow the government of the day, but as I'm on the commission as an ex-Defence Force, yes, it certainly is a, a really big security issue, and that's been recognised. And it's not just those immediate impacts of the bushfires on, on life and livelihood, which we've all seen, but it's that broader interconnected national security issue of, um, OK, what's our economy doing? You can't have a good Defence Force without a good economy. That's what, what funds the equipment. How's our international standing going? We can't have much international clout in terms of our alliance relationships if you're busy focusing on your own um, bushfires, which we're expected to do. So there's those broader systemic risks that I think the Commission really needs to address, Ian. So broad systemic risks is another way of trying to get the states on board. Greg, do you take a, a slightly more simple view and just tell them to look out the bloody window? <laughs> yeah, look out the window. Um, I, if you can I, see out the window, of course. Yes, yeah, and with your mask on, your P2 mask, so everybody just be very careful. But, um, look, I think I'd assure all the states and territories that unlike the Cabinet, the Commission will be chosen on the basis of merit and people will have brains. Um, so... <laughs> I, and I'd be talking about future generations because if you think this is bad, you just wait to see what's around the corner with two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, which is probably where it all stops for the human race. So, Lydia, you've, uh, you've been hearing these sales pitches that are being put to the various state and territory premiers. From your point of view, are you just pleased to have an Indigenous seat at the table? Absolutely. I'm, I'm really honoured to have been the chosen Aboriginal person as the Commissioner. <laughs> Usually it's not people like me. 
Um, but I think that my advice would be about resetting the nation, resetting the relationship with its first people, the oldest living culture on the planet, and learning from what we have to offer. Well, despite the round of applause from people watching through the windows as this commission has its discussion, you are convincing as commissioners, but you're not that convincing. And it does prove that the politics of fossil fuel is too big a hurdle for some. Indeed, in Queensland, uh, the Premier Palaszczuk won't even take the call of the Victorian counterpart. But by the end of March, Victoria has managed to persuade New South Wales, Tasmania, South Australia and, and uh, the ACT to join in establishing this safe climate commission. It's not everyone, but it is enough. And there is a real sense of momentum, and it's on your heads to grab this momentum and turn it into real action with some thorough recommendations. Now, the Premier is feeling pretty pleased with himself, but Carmen Lawrence, history would tell us that the states can work together, can't they? They can, and I'd be surprised if he gave up on those two rogue states. Um, West Australia and Queensland, in a sense, have more to lose in the short term, but a lot more to gain in the long term, uh, because these are remnant industries that will collapse. And I think by appealing to their sense of being part of the solution, because state premiers are nothing if not pragmatic. They want to solve problems, and if you appeal to their desire to protect their communities, an appeal to harm and fairness are very important, I think, at that level. Do no harm to your citizens and do it in such a way that you're fair to all the players. And I think with the right kind of pitch, certainly the fear that we've talked about needs to be underlining it all, but to say to premiers, solve these problems, I think they'd get on board. They, they, and they would, I think, have some useful contributions to make because they're the communities that will be left behind and treated unfairly if their representatives are not part of the solution. And Karen, I'm assuming that you would share that optimism about potentially getting the recalcitrant states on board because they can come together when it counts. I think the important thing here is that the case has been made for action. I don't think we need to go into any more discussion about whether we need to take action on climate change or whether we need to do it as an entire nation. That case has been made. But what I think we do need to do is to move beyond this silo thinking where you just have one state or another taking action or the federal government or where one department like the Envi Department of Environment takes action or the Department of Energy takes action. What we need to do is to take uh, a view that is holistic, that involves all of government at all levels, and we have to also include local government in that because much of climate action is going to come from the cities and local government areas who are able to do a lot at that local area. Uh, area level, and uh, and we certainly saw this as a model when um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was leading the Australian Medical Association, we had an, a medical indemnity crisis, and what we had to do was to convince every state and territory and the federal government of the need for action to preserve the medical profession, certain specialties, and we had to make that case. In 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 this instance, the case has been made. We do need to just move on to action, but we also have to take a broad holistic view. 
So the, your recommendation to the Commission now is to absolutely take this, this broad, this holistic view. And as a, as a Commission, you will get to the subject of governance shortly. But before you do that, there is some congratulations in order. You've all got a new job, and it's quite a serious job, and it will help you with your future profile. So you will head down to the pub, and you're having a, having a, a celebratory drink when all your phones start to vibrate with a news alert, and indeed the TV down at the pub starts to run the story and news flashes about a monster tropical typhoon that slammed into China's Pearl River Delta. This uh, part of China is its largest manufacturing and export zone, and we've all seen flooding in China before, but this is something of an entirely different scale. Essentially, it's a Category 6 cyclone. It's devastated port facilities and production capacity, and it's left millions of people without homes, millions of people without livelihood, and it's shut down the export business of southern China. Paul Gilding, you've advised on some of the world's uh, largest companies, warning them about uh, disruption. This really is the ultimate disruption, isn't it? Yeah, I think what happens now that this um, horrific storm has hit on a already weakened China, because this, this is the latest in a series of storms, latest in a series of impacts, um, is that the political situation in China is going to be very badly affected because they haven't prepared, they haven't got ready for what was coming, the people are angry about the lack of preparation by government, um, and they're already economically weakened. A uh, huge issue for us in Australia and for this Commission, because what that means is that China's economy is going to go into a very serious decline. That's going to trigger, I think, probably larger than the Asian financial crisis, impacts around the region, which is going to have devastating impacts on us. So all the talk that we've had on this Commission about what the, economy, what the economic threats are going to be has now come into reality, and we're going to see the coal market simply collapse overnight, as if the Chinese government's going to increase coal exports after this has occurred, it's not going to happen. Plus, they're going to divert massive amounts of their resources away from consumption. As in, in terms of the economy, the, the money will go away from consumption, increase in taxation, divert it towards recovery. And that means we're going to pay the price here in Australia. So, Ian Dunlop, does this become a, a bigger hurdle that you're now in another Asian financial crisis? It's dire economic conditions, and you're looking at what you can recommend for real change. Does it increase the hurdle? Yes, I think one of the issues we have to do, and we would have done in the early part of this, would be to look at the real risks that climate change do, does present. And, of course, what we're now seeing is it is unfolding, as Paul said. The situation you get into is a little bit like the global financial crisis now, where all of a sudden you had to, to completely recast the economy around the world. And if you look at what actually happened, I mean, we, we managed to find $40 trillion out of nowhere over a space of a very short period of time to actually stabilize the entire system. Now, it's not exactly the same, but it's going to need that sort of approach at a um, holistic level, as Karen said, to address the problem. It will have to be addressed nationally. This is a Victorian committee, but nobody else is actually doing it. So we now get the opportunity to take this to a, a higher level, if you like. 
And, and it's the only group that's actually prepared to do it. And don't forget, though, that you do have the ACT, South Australia, New South Wales and Tasmania on board with this Victorian Commission. But, Cheryl, there's another part to this, isn't there? There's also the humanitarian side. I mean, when you've got such devastation in such a strong trading partner, Australia would try, would they not, to come to China's aid? I think there are a couple of things here. I think certainly Australia has a vested interest in good global order. Most of our security documents talk about a rules-based order. We certainly don't want to see a collapsing globe because as a nation we're, we're highly dependent on those global supply chains and global governance and that effective global economy. And one of the things David Spratt said uh, earlier today was the need to look with a clear and brutal look at the risks we might face. And at the moment, I don't think we know the impact of that Chinese disaster on our own supply chains. Do we know where the medicines are coming from? Do we know the impact of that manufacturing on ICT components? Are suddenly all those mobile phones that your teenagers need to, to live their life going down? So again, there's a real deep interconnected global economy. And I think part of the climate response needs to understand those risks and connections. Greg, you've sent recovery teams all over the world in your past history. What do you say to the Commission so they have some context around it? Because friends who help are friends indeed, aren't they? Um, yes, and look, one of the hats I used to wear was International Fire Chiefs Association of Asia. I was a director of that, and um, you can't say Asian cultures, they're all different, but they know, they remember people who help them. Everybody does, so it'd be very important straight away for Australia to send aid, humanitarian aid, as much as we possibly could. And um, I think Ian would also be saying to Queensland, you can't sell your coal anymore, so come and join our committee. What, what do you reckon, Ian? Time to start seeing if that recalcitrant state can see the light? Well, I think obviously it does raise the issue um, that the industry is being cut back for all sorts of different reasons. So you have the opportunity to actually take a proactive approach to actually restructuring how these industries operate and moving people into the newer areas that uh, potentially could open up. But it does mean you've got to completely rethink the, the way the, the Australian economy is actually balanced in terms of trying to do that. Carmen, how important is cooperation and collaboration at times like this? And how might this even be leveraged? Well, it's, it's obviously critical um, if we're to be good international citizens that on an occasion like this uh, we, we are reaching out. But I'm afraid that there's some response, some pushback from the authoritarian government in China who are, it must be said, afraid still of interference from international governments who would appear to be critical of the, the Chinese government. Uh, we saw that with the coronavirus response and we're seeing signs of it now. So that collaboration and cooperation is not made easy because of the nature of government in China. So it will require a degree of sophistication on the part of Australia's foreign affairs and, and other agencies to work with Chinese citizens who are in a state of uproar and the government is cracking down really hard. So our contribution is going to be more difficult than it has been in the past. And they will be looking to China first and many other nations around the world are already closing their borders and we're seeing a deglobalization which is accelerating the sorts of problems that we are likely to see with changes to the nature of the uh, economies following 
climate change action. So this is um, accelerating many of those trends far faster, I think, than any of our governments at the moment are capable of responding to. We've got some serious social uh, disruption going on in all sorts of parts of the world, and we shouldn't overlook that as one of the consequences uh, of climate change. Well, indeed. I mean, if, if we haven't got enough to worry about just with what the climate is actually doing, what's happening in the rest of the world is adding enormous pressure to the work of our commissioners. And even though you have got your work cut out for you already with the bushfires and the drought in Australia and now the devastation in China and this second Asian financial crisis, the Premier presents you with a list of key scientific forecasts. He just wants to make sure that these things are in the back of your mind, he's unclear whether you actually do get just how fast he needs you to act. So by 2060, the fire conditions that we've seen recently in Australia are likely to be an every year event. The Great Barrier Reef is in, is in a death spiral of increasingly frequent bleaching. Sea level rises of two to three metres will inundate Kakadu and Torres Strait communities and past part of Australia's coastline. And to top it off, the Murray-Darling Basin, which is the country's food bowl, could well become the country's dust bowl. Lydia, you've been listening to all of this. You are no stranger to adversity, but at this point, you just feel like giving up and walking away, head in your hands. Well, after 250 years of colonisation, invasion and genocide in this country, uh, no, I'm not about to walk away and give up. Um, I think that, as I said earlier, we need to reset this country. This country is part of the colonial project and we know that colonisers are destroying land and water all over the globe. So we need... The experts will advise what we do in an emergency, but what we need to do as a nation is listen to the first people of these lands. It's a struggle every single time we try and voice our opinion or our solution. It's a struggle. I brought the Aboriginal flags from home because we were even missing on stage. So it's a constant struggle to have our voices heard. And we are the solution to this crisis. We've been watching this crisis unfold for 250 years. We've adapted, we've overcome, but now you have to join us in that fight. Oliver, you've, you've heard Lydia's very passionate response. You've also heard these uh, key scientific forecasts that the Premier wants you to be aware of. What's your reaction? Well, I'd be uh, saying that I'm really worried that we haven't actually started on the task but which are here to do, which is to actually reduce our emissions to zero over 10 years. And uh, there will be, as what's happened in China, climate incidents that are going to become more common globally. Our job is to actually make sure that we can demonstrate that we can stop that happening by reducing emissions under this scenario by 10% per annum. That's an enormous challenge. So you can't, I'd be saying to my commissioners, we need to put blinkers on here. There's a lot of noise that's going to be going wrong internationally uh, and globally that could distract us from the task. But if the underlying cause of the problems is carbon emissions and global warming, we as commissioners need to cut this task into meaningful chunks 
explain to the people of how we can achieve 10% reduction per annum and they'll have a lot more jobs than they would have had before and it will lead us to the end of the tunnel, the end of the cause. That's so, what I'd be saying. Oliver, at this point, Ian interrupts you because, of course, the rest of the Commission was not aware that they had this target of zero emissions in 10 years. You and Ian have been chatting about this on the sidelines and it's your, it's your idea that you're going to put it to the panel as the best available scientific evidence uh, that that is what Australia should be doing. Not 30 years, but zero emissions in a, rear, a, a mere decade from now. So, as a panel of commissioners, that's what you're considering. Ian, that is a rapidly accelerated time frame. Can we do it? Well, technically we can do it, but the problem we've got is that we need a political structure that actually is capable of picking up that task and delivering it. And that's going to be the big challenge. So what we have to do is to articulate those risks very clearly, put out, I think, a new narrative that says this is the circumstances we're now faced with, as Oliver said. Um, we have the components of that solution. And then the political system has to be convinced to pick it up. Now, well, so how, the question how then is, that is can they happen? Do it? I mean, you, you've got to, just in the newspapers this morning, as you commissioners were busy having your Wheaties before you came into your meeting, you would have seen that the new resources minister is quoted saying we need more gas, we need more coal, we may need more uranium. So, how do you get that? Well, we won't with current political attitudes, that's perfectly clear. We cannot deliver this sort of change with the speed that's required with a system that doesn't really believe we've got a problem. Now, after what's happened in China, um, that may be changing. But the fact is that most of our political system has not actually changed that fast. And we've seen these events occur before, and we haven't seen the political response we need. So what I think, as commissioners, we have to do is to have a very clear narrative and be prepared to get out and sell that in all, at all sorts of levels um, to get the support behind it, because in the end, it is the only solution. I mean, the only thing that will solve this is getting those emissions done. And, and the same report that uh, had you two discussing whether or not you were going to do zero in 10, that same paper, you told the Commission that uh, what you're looking at is akin to wartime, the suspension of business as usual, politically, corporately and socially. So, Ian, as the head of this Commission, are you arguing, arguing that we need a wartime cabinet, is that your plan? Yes, I think if you look at this, it is akin to wartime, it's not always a good analogy, but what do you do in a wartime situation? Well, you basically say there is one absolute threat that we have to get on top of that is more important than anything else. So we have to be prepared to devote all of the resources necessary to address that problem and get on top of it. Sure, there are lots of other things that have to be done. But if you don't fix this one, the rest becomes somewhat academic. Now, that's the situation we're currently in with the evidence we've seen in China, the impacts and the economic changes that are occurring. So the entire system has to be rethought in that context. And that means changes right across the spectrum, all sorts of the departments of uh, government and what have you, the corporate sector, have all got to be um, welded in behind this. 
but, but if, I'm still... if you get commitment from the entire system, possibly you can do it, but it's got to have an absolutely total commitment. And, and Paul, I'm still confused about how we possibly get this commitment. We have a Prime Minister who likes to fondle coal. I don't really get how we're going to suddenly end up with this level of cooperation. Well, I think, I think um, you know, to start with, Oliver and I should go to all of our mates in the corporate sector and bring in 10 of them to meet with the 10 of us, eight of us, right, and say, listen, we're not talking to the BCA because we know where they stand. We know where the government's at in terms of fondling coal, etc. We need you to work with us on communicating this issue to the financial markets, to the business community. And if you do that, we're going to help you get a huge amount of funding right, to drive this change in a very positive way. But you have to be on board with us. You have to help us work out what is the strategy, what is the economic strategy, and how much money are you prepared to invest if we back you to do that? Because if we don't have you on board as business leaders, we will not get there because of the political consequences that our chairman here is referring to. But Oliver fortunately knows all these people, right, and he's got access to like trillions of dollars, um, and there's lots of money you know, that's filing out of Queensland because they're now a rogue state. We're going to have to invest a lot of infrastructure. I think one of those things could be a wall across the Queensland border because there's, there's going to be a lot of people leaving Queensland, coming to New South Wales. And, and look, we will, we'll get to that, but I'm, yeah. still, I'm still bogged down with the... Um, I'm busy taking notes as you meet, and I'm still bogged down on your governance structure. Carmen? I think we're missing the point here. I mean, as a commission, we were invited by the state governments to take action. The state governments have capacity. They have capacity <clears throat> to work with the private sector. Indeed, they have capacity to require the private sector to make contributions that would enable some of the infrastructure and some of the changes. We, we shouldn't be frightened. These big corporations, particularly the multinationals, have made squillions of dollars out of our country, and many of them haven't been paying tax of any substantial kind. And without being too punitive, we can say to them, it's time now to make good the damage that you have done to our community. And we expect you to, to work with the Commission and with the State Premiers to start to provide the, the, the changes in investment. And if not, we'll take the money and do it ourselves. It's, it's time to stop pussyfooting around with the corporate sector, in my view. I'll just let Oliver respond, as he's the man with the money. Well, I do appreciate the idea that sometimes you need to use a cricket bat, but I've found that that doesn't actually tend to get the result. It's actually, it's very clear here that we as a commission, um, through our discussions with our mates, fully understand what the business community wants. And what the business community wants is they want to achieve action on climate change in a way which doesn't destroy their business. Do you speak, Max? But rather, but rather grows their business. And we can do that. I mean, their concern, as you hear time and time again, is will the action in Australia affect our international competitiveness? Well, the answer is, is we need to make sure that they can act in a way where we don't affect their international competitiveness by spending our time leaning offshore to make sure our international partners are following exactly the same policies as we are in Australia. So we need a massive government outreach campaign so that all our trading partners are also starting to get on board with this so there's a level playing field for business. And when we explain to business that we're about to enter a world where actually power is unlimited and available, and what is that gonna mean to you in industry? 
when clean power is available to you everywhere for your manufacturing businesses. But, but you're still assuming that you have someone that you can that will be having that conversation. I'm still trying to work out how you get a a government or a government of national unity or a war cabinet that is going to make that point. Greg, what's your recommendation? Is this working? Yeah, look, I'm a firefighter and I sort of see a fire and I put it out. It's very direct. Have a referendum, become a republic, Zali for president, and <laughs> give, give her executive powers, um, bugger the people in Canberra, and we should limit the electricity that goes there so they have to turn the lights out in Parliament House. But, and look, I, I've, you know, thinking about a war footing, and my father was in World War II, my grandfather in Gallipoli, etc. I wonder back then if there are any politicians stupid enough to say, in my opinion, there's no war. <laughs> Bugger off, Barnaby. And Karen, let me ask you, I, I know earlier today Peter Garrett suggested that maybe what we should be doing is having a joint sitting of both houses. I mean, how do you see us getting to the point where we have a government or we have people in a position of power who would aim to bring about this change? One of the most extraordinary things I have seen in the last uh, living memory is the movement of young people for climate change action all around the world. Uh, you have a movement that is led by a 16, now 17-year-old. You have young people taking time out of school with the support of their parents and teachers to get hit the streets to say to politicians, we want you to act on our future. And so there is a, uh, th this is not just going to be driven from the political system. This is being driven by the people. And this is a very different scenario than I think we've ever seen before. Because people are now demanding a safe future for themselves, for their children, for their grandchildren and generations beyond. And we all know that unless we act now and unless this commission is able to achieve in 10 years what we are being tasked to achieve, then that future could well be under threat. We know it will be. All of the science tells us that. And so we, we need to have the people electing parliamentarians who will deliver these outcomes. We need to have the politicians who have been elected to step outside of a party political system that is only saying you must vote this way because we tell you to and if you don't, you'll lose your party pre-selection. Ian? I mean, here's the big question. Do we just suspend democracy? Well, I think, I think we are. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I think we are at a point now that that becomes a real question because the way that the country has been proceeding in looking at climate change now for 30 years has effectively suspended democracy. We're not actually taking decisions in the, interest, in the public interest any longer. We've allowed this to develop in such a way that the country is now totally unprepared for what has been happening. And there is no sign politically at the moment that that is actually going to change. Now, we now have this threat, which has suddenly escalated because of the events in Southeast Asia and China. Um, we've had our own problems in Australia, obviously, over former years. So you have to now say, well, what's going to happen? If we have this 10-year time horizon, then I think this commission needs to start thinking very carefully about the fact that we have to propose 
a sort of government of national unity, as you said, which brings together the best possible leaders we can find, not necessarily politicians, but there may be some, um, from the corporate sector, from academia, from the community, that is welded into a leadership group that is prepared to lead this change, and it's going to be absolutely massive. It means complete societal change to achieve the sort of 10-year time frame that um, Oliver's talking about. It may mean the suspension of democracy in one sense, but in the other sense, it brings it back because it stops, I think, if you can get acceptance, the uh, type of corruption that frankly has been going on for the last 10 or 15 years. How, how do you do it? Well, well why don't we, we ask have Cheryl? Cheryl represents uh, uh, the ADF here. So, Cheryl, what position would they take? I mean, if you've got a very upset public, but you can't get the people who are ruling the place to listen. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Although a global coup would, with the biggest five militaries of the world would probably solve the problem. It would probably create a lot of problems as well. One thing I do want to make difference, because we've been talking about the wartime emergency, there's a critical difference, because in the wartime there was a bad guy. Uh, it was easy to have an enemy. We could socially come together against that enemy. But with climate change, the enemy is really us, because we're the ones that are emitting, I think I calculated, I emit 2.2 planets worth of resources or consume it. So I really think they have, okay, not the people in this room, um, but effectively it requires all of us and social change, I think, before we get the political change. I think if we're hoping and hoping and waiting for the political will to act, we might be hoping and waiting a bit too long, given we're counting down onto the second critical decade now. So, so I think it's really the challenge for everyone to look at what they can do. So Carmen, do, do you agree that it has to be bottom up? I mean, how do, you, how do you see this new governance structure coming into being, let alone working? Well, I think there are a lot of things wrong with our democracy which need to be improved, but I wouldn't abandon democracy in the face of climate change because in the end, uh, we may be sacrificing more than we're seeking to avoid. Um, I think it's a very dangerous idea, in fact. You can employ people who have the skills and attitudes and aptitudes, rather, uh, that you need in order to solve the problem without throwing out the whole idea that the, the people elect those representatives who then make decisions preferably with them, not for them. I mean, our democracy has become too remote from people, but I think the, the idea that we would kill democracy, this, that this commission would recommend its watering down um, in any way would be a problem. I actually think that, uh, that we need to persuade, we need to persuade um, the politicians that they have to act and set up an emergency uh, response. I agree with that. And I think given what we've seen, the fires here in Australia, the, the catastrophes around the world, the, the droughts uh, in Africa, that they are now recognising that Australia has to play a very significant role in this. We are, we are at a tipping point uh, in our um, international relations. We are in our economy. Politicians aren't stupid. They are the same as us. You know, whether we like it or not, uh, some of them look like they don't belong to the human race, I agree. But, but nonetheless, they are now persuaded, I think, that action is necessary, and it would be possible to get a government of national unity, which is what Menzies proposed and Curtin rejected, actually, in wartime. And then he established a war cabinet and Curtin continued with that. The history is sometimes rewritten a bit. 
But the, the, the war cabinet idea was good because it mobilised everybody. And you can mobilise a community, a government, all the way through if you have commitment at the top. We've done it before in, in minor ways. If you think of the NDIS, the pressure on the governments led to the establishment of uh, a proper insurance system for those with disabilities. It's got its problems and it's not necessarily functioning as brilliantly as everyone hoped, but it happened, and it happened in a cross-party way. It's possible to get that kind of action, but you do have to be persuasive. And I, I'm sorry, but the corporate sector's not gonna do it for us. It has to be the elected representatives of the people of Australia working with all of the people who make up our very complicated country. We can't abandon democracy. Oliver, well, wait. I'll just, I'm going to go to Oliver first and I'll come back. Do you, do you, do you agree that we're at that point? Well, look, I, I think that it's important to get a mandate from the people. And if we can get a mandate for same-sex marriage for $70 million, I think we can get some philanthropic people to give us $70 million to ensure we have a mandate from the people to take meaningful climate action. So you're action. going for a referendum? Well, if you can take the people with you and say to the people, we're going to take your vote, your views, because apparently... You know, I support democracy rather than think we should override it. I think generally people are sensible. They give us and make it very clear that we should be acting on this emergency and then with that power we form a government of national unity where we decide if those people in the Liberal Party who care about the climate want to come and join and those people from the Labor Party want to come and join, you'll either end up with a new party or a, party of or a government of national unity. Lydia, can I ask you what would our First Nations peoples think of this idea? Maybe, maybe a referendum. Well, I think that the question is, and going on earlier comments, you know, this country is built on stolen land. Therefore, the wealth created from this land is also stolen. And this country has no spirituality. Well, that's, that's what we need to look at as a country, as a nation. We need to reconnect with the land and we need to reconnect with the first people. Uh, democracy has not helped our people ever in this country that's based on this colonial system. It's, it's, whether it's liberal or labor, it's, it's never been good for us. So we just you know, go on every day fighting every injustice coming so our do way. You, do you support a government of national unity or would you say suspend democracy? What would you say would be the best way? I would say go back to the oldest democracy on the planet, which is our democracy. It's our law of the land, which has sustained it for thousands of years. And I know that, you know, the, maybe this panel is in disagreement or doesn't understand, but we are always void of this discussion. And for 250 years, we've been banging our fist on the table saying, listen to us. We'll tell you how to care for the land. We'll tell you how to protect the water. But still, we're not supported in that, in that fight, in the injustice that continues. And until we address the social justice that goes on in this country, we will never address climate justice. It's the blackfellas and the poor people that will die first and, and have the most horrific you know, uh, injustice as a result of climate change. Well, let's just put that to so, Paul. I mean, Lydia has a point, doesn't she? That if you can't solve one problem, why would you be able to solve another? I think this democracy thing is really important for us as a commission, that we can actually, you know, the, the mandate for us is to mobilise action and to make recommendations. We can also do things directly. 
as, as, as Cummins point, you know, state governments have a lot of power. Right? So we can actually do quite a bit, and I think we could call for community mobilisation on this kind of issue. I think we could actually, as I said, go and talk to business people and bring them in. We can go and talk to the community and bring them in. We can actually go and talk to activists about what things that they could do to try and mobilise stronger responses in the community. Our chairman's point is that you have to communicate the truth and you have to communicate aggressively and strongly what the reality of the, of the threat is. And so I think in that way, engaging First Nations people, engaging activists of all sorts to try and get them to actually push for action on the federal government. Now, I can imagine us as a commission, our work would be much easier if Extinction Rebellion and School Strike went and occupied Canberra, for example, right? And, and they maybe closed down the airport and closed down all the roads in there and said, actually, we're not leaving until you do something. So I think we have to recognise we've got capacity to mobilise those people. Karen, what do you think of that? Do you, I'll, I'll let, I'll, we'll, we'll let the chairman speak because he is the chairman and then, and then I'll come back to you, Karen. Well, I think what the chairman will be doing at this point is bringing it back to the fact that we should not fall into the trap of assuming that this is the sort of thing that's happened before. I mean, this is something that is completely unique. We've never been faced with this type of situation in the past. It's a level of risk which is genuinely existential. And if you, if you are faced with that, you do things that are totally out of the ordinary. And that's what we're faced with with this issue. So we are going to have to take a, an approach which is able to cut through the normal systems and deliver the sort of change we're talking about, which is way beyond anything anyone in the world has ever done before. I mean, let's face it, no country has ever reduced emissions much more than about 3% per annum. And even that's been an enormous struggle. We're talking of doing it four times that. So, you know, we've got, to, we've got to be realistic. I mean, we can't do it with the existing system. It doesn't mean to say, it seems to me, that you suspend democracy, but you get acceptance from the debates that Paul suggested we might trigger, those sorts of things, talking to people with a new narrative, that this is the challenge you're facing, we need a new system to do it, and we suspend conventional activities for the time it takes to get on top of it. Karen, can you see that as a viable way forward? Yes, I just want to return to the point that you made about abandoning democracy. Listening to the people is not abandoning democracy. That is democracy. What's happening is that the government in place at the moment is not listening to the people because they're listening to the fossil fuel industry who are donors. So perhaps one of the first things that our commission could recommend to the government is to ban donations for political parties from fossil fuel companies. And Greg, would you be in favour of the commission recommending some sort of war cabinet? I don't know whether you, you use that term, but something that will come from the bottom up something that would allow not the suspension of democracy, but for some of these tough actions to be taken? So look, I imagine uh, the chair, Ian, would say to me, could you get your former colleagues to come together and educate the public about this existential threat? Um, if you think 2019, 2020 fire season was bad, and the storms that came after it, you've seen nothing yet. Um, so this, we need to be on a war footing. 
we do need to have bottom-up, what Karen was saying about lo all levels of government. Um, we need to have solutions in sectors, so agriculture, industry, transport, energy, get working groups and all of those, but get everybody behind it. And that's true democracy, getting everybody working on this. And look, what Lydia was saying, heal the country. And I had this wonderful conversation with um, somebody who knows about cultural burning practices, and I was being told by people, yeah, just get local brigade to get a drip torch and burn in circles. No, it's about healing country, about knowing when animals are nesting and reproducing, what plants are there and everything. We've trashed the place. We've cut down the trees. We've dammed the water. Um, th this country is in distress. We're at war. Um, and we need to work with Mother Nature, not against her. So as a commission, as I cross the stage so no one thinks that I'm left-leaning so that I face the other way for a little while, um, as a commission, you have to come up with a series of recommendations, and it's incredibly important that you get this governance structure right, that you get something that will motivate people to act. So are you happy using the word war, calling it a, a war cabinet? Would you prefer government of national unity? Do we have some sense? Would you like to take the lead, Ian, here as, as uh, the lead commissioner, the chairman, as to what your final recommendation is going to say on governance structure? I think the, <coughs> the, the use of the war analogy gets a lot of people offside and says it sends the wrong messages and what have you. But I can't think of any, you're not really talking of a war um, activity, you're talking about something you do akin to wartime. In other words, what do you do? You accept this is the biggest threat, you have to devote the resources to addressing it, and it's uh, an exercise in trying to preserve humanity, that's what we're doing. So I can't think of a better way of expressing it because that's what you do in wartime. But you need to understand that we're not talking of conflict in that sense. The problem is that if we don't do it, we are going to get into conflict, because what you can see all around the world already, because of the China so any effects, is you get that type of conflict developing. We've seen it in Syria. We've seen it in uh, other parts of the Middle East. We're seeing, if you like, conflict in Brexit in Britain because of basically climate change. So these things are happening, and you see it in the events in the South Coast, for example, over the last um, few months where you're getting to a lot of social conflict because of the pressures and the damage that's being caused. So if we don't stop that, then we get into a much bigger problem. So I think it's perfectly valid to use the concept of akin to wartime. Akin to wartime. And we all you're in talking favor? of a government of national unity okay. that comes together. Are we all in favour? Because we need to move on. A akin to wartime? Happy? Nods? Uh, <sighs> The, the, the war was declared on us 250 years ago, so to Aboriginal people, the war had ne has never ended. And the war on our land and our people has never ended. So I'm happy with war, and I think Bob Catter might join us. <laughs> Oliver, I'm going, to, I'm going to stop you because uh, essentially it's time for lunch, and you've all got an incredibly important appointment down at the, uh, the local Chinese restaurant, which you're doing your best to patronise because of the problems with the coronavirus. 
And uh, while you're down there, you've decided that you've resolved this part of the equation, which of course is only one part, the governance part. The other part is what do you actually do? Once you've got this governance structure in place, you still need to decide how you get to zero emissions in just 10 years. Oliver, how do you do that? Well, you start with a plan. If you know where you're going, which is zero, as I think I may have started before, it isn't too hard to divide it by 10, even for politicians. So it might be a bit hard for them. But you, you need to set a meaningful roadmap on a sector-by-sector -sector basis. And this is the same work that has been done in ad nauseum by Climate Works, is where you can look at the cheapest sectors to reduce emissions as quickly as possible, and you go sector by sector through the economy with a timetable, with a plan, with a carbon budget, and you start addressing the problem. And, and obviously, huge investment in renewables, huge investment in a new transmission system. Absolutely, because there is no possibility of getting to zero emissions without bringing clean energy to the table. And at the moment, as I was discussing today, on a crisis call, the biggest challenge we now have is that people can't get clean energy to market. Our transmission system has not kept up with the planning and the delivery demands for renewables coming back into the city. You start with the electricity sector, you need lots of clean energy, and only with that resource can you start the decarbonisation pathway. Paul, can I, can I just point out to you, though, that you do, of course, have some 52,000 people who work in the coal sector. You've got a lot of people in towns in outback Queensland, for example, who are not on board. Look, I think that's, the, that's a super important issue I was just about to raise, is that there is enormous power that we, as a commission, have because of our access to state governments to raise revenue. Right? And there is really a possibility that we can make a recommendation that those states that are on board right, should be going to the global financial markets and saying, we're going to borrow massive amounts of money, guaranteed by government, to make it available to the business community who are going to implement this plan. Now, unfortunately, Queensland's been relegated to junk bond status since the, since the, since the recent climate events, so they can't be involved anyway, and they can't borrow any money anymore. But New South Wales and Victoria certainly can and have the capacity to do so. And so I do think, seriously, if you, have, if you go to the business community and you say, we are going to have state government debt, right, and we're going to raise billions of dollars in that process, and we're going to allocate it to those who reduce emissions the fastest. Right? We're going to allocate it to local councils who implement energy efficiency programs. We're going to allocate it to any business community member who can actually deliver the plan that we have developed, that would, untrigger, that would trigger a huge amount of employment, which will then, I think, start to address the massive job losses that are going to occur with the collapse of the coal industry. So you can show people how they can actually benefit, not suffer. Karen, that's important, isn't it? We need to have an orderly transition and we need to identify the most vulnerable communities first. And those are the communities which are at risk of collapse if the coal or gas or oil industry on which they are reliant collapses. And so we have to leave nobody behind in this transition. And so part of the work of this commission needs to be identifying those vulnerable communities and starting there, uh, at, at least as part of Oliver's plan, uh, we need to identify those communities and make sure that there is a, a viable transition plan for those people so that their communities continue to thrive without uh, the fossil fuel industry. 
Well, at this point, Carmen, you bang the table a little bit um, ferociously because you're, of course, a specialist in the psychology of climate change. What do you want to say here that the panel should be aware of? Well, one of the things that's probably not strictly related to the psychology of climate change is that we can't act, uh, in a sense, in isolation. This is a global problem. The Commission has been behaving as if we don't need to reach out and work with the international community because a lot of the people who have invested in this country, who have resources in this country, the big corporations, they operate on an international stage. And unless we're thinking about that and working with them, there'll be a lot of pushback. They're not simply going to say, oh, that's very nice, Australia. We're happy for you to do that. They will be using the power that they have previously exercised in this country through money, through bullying, uh, through standing over their politicians and the Commission to ensure that they don't, they're not losers in all of this. It's not just the individual communities who will lose if we're not careful. We need a just transition, absolutely, for those people and they need to see a future for themselves. But if we're naive about the fact that the rest of the world isn't coming along with us and that indeed there are some pretty malign forces who are arraigned, and I don't mean to be conspiratorial, but they've done it before. And if we're not alert to that, then it doesn't matter how much we reduce our emissions, we could be swallowed up uh, very quickly by the, the international forces that are arraigned against us. So the Commission needs to be very alert to that. And indeed you will be, and you'll be rather impressed when your phones start to ping with yet another news alert. And as it turns out, uh, Xi Jinping, China's president, is holding an absolutely unprecedented press conference. He's decided that this global, uh, or really Asian, but now becoming rapidly a global financial crisis should be used as the, uh, I suppose, the catalyst for really terrific change in China. And he has announced that the way for the future, the economic way of the future is clean energy production and innovation. And he announces a rapidly accelerated timeline for decarbonisation. As is the way with China, the devil is in the detail, which you haven't seen yet, but there is a rapid, uh, certainly a rapid upscale of that timetable. Not to be outdone, Japan, one of our major trading partners, announces that it is moving to zero emissions by 2030, and any country that doesn't also accelerate its decarbonisation will have their trade deals renegotiated. Paul, China, Japan, this is really game-changing stuff for Australia, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. It is absolutely. It is absolutely, and, and what it means is that we're no longer talking about planning for a transition of our industries. We're talking about recovery from collapse. Because what's happened since this news was announced is the financial markets have slashed the value of all the companies that mine in Australia, recognising their markets, markets have just evaporated. So we have got communities in uproar and angry because they've all just been, they've all just lost their jobs. So our task is no longer in this commission to think about planning for a just transition over time. It is how do we get them, how do we get the recovery to occur as rapidly as possible, what resources we put in there. And I think you know, Greg's experience in the, in, the, in the emergency services is actually really important here, that when you have a collapse of a community, you don't just put the fire out and leave. You, know, you actually have to then think about what's the recovery program we need to think about in light of these climate disasters, in light of this collapse of whole industries, what's our recovery program for our economies, otherwise we'll keep on going into decline. And Greg, do you see this as a game changer and, and, and exactly as Paul just described? Um, absolutely. So I'm sure China and Japan will be looking to partner with countries who can provide 
the minerals they need to make batteries, the, the, the expertise, um, etc. And look, we'll have transitioned most of the coal mine workers into firefighting roles because we need so many of them. But uh, they'll be able to go back into lithium mines and things. So um, this, that's a game changer. And can I bring you in again, uh, Carmen? Do you, do you think that this will make it easier to bring those communities that are not on board at the early, when you first started this conversation, will it help to persuade them? Or are they not even thinking about that global space because they don't believe the problem in the first place? I think it will help. I think many people seeing, as we've seen with the bushfires and other events in China and so on, are already moving. Whether they stay convinced or not is another matter. Um, but we are, as social creatures, very keen to support our communities. And the closer, in a sense, we can make the action, which is a bit the opposite of what I was saying earlier, but we're likely to act globally if we, we care about the communities that we're part of and we're prepared to act to support them. And I think this is an opportunity to have a conversation too, as we see China and Japan basically changing the game for Australia's economy, to think about what we mean by an economy and to perhaps start thinking about whether a permanent growth model is really the way of the future. Our, in, our indigenous people, our natural environment, the resources we have at our disposal are not limitless. And we're still behaving as if this planet is limitless. It's not. Climate change is the most extreme example of our failure to think through the need to change our economy. Growth should not be king in the future. Now, I think we also, we also have to recognise Australia is a renewable energy powerhouse in waiting. We have enough solar in Australia to power most of the world. So instead of just focusing on sort of ourselves or the negatives, I think there's great opportunity to uh, step up to meet the demand from Japan and China. And I know that the Australian National University is already doing a trial prototype with the Northern Territory government to export power to, to Singapore. And you also have the hydrogen economy as well, which can be an export uh, industry for Australia. So I think we need to look at, as part of looking at the downside risks, we need to look at the upside opportunities for Australia in a, in a world that needs to move to renewables. Uh Paul, just as, uh, as the Commission's starting to get just a little bit nervous about maybe the time frame, but looking at the, the global moves, uh, do you show them some of the things that you've recently written about how we are reaching this sort of, it seems, a tipping point? You've got the Reserve Bank say things, you've got BlackRock pulling out of coal, you've got BHP pulling out of coal, you've got... Is there a movement there? Do you feel confident enough to tell the Commissioners that there is something that they can grasp onto? Yeah, look, I think, you know, if, if you imagine this commission in sitting in that situation that you described in, in this whole story, the markets have already collapsed. I don't just mean the whole market, but the markets for fossil fuels, the markets for those industries that most exposed have collapsed. And so I think that changes the game because we have had 10 years, right, of, of central banks, of major financial institutions, of investors, etc., saying we're getting ready for this moment. So it's not like they've just discovered it, they just didn't want to go first. Right? So the point of that is that when you have a major trigger, like the climate disasters you talked about, like China moving to zero emissions in 10 years and so on, the market will suddenly flip. 
And when it flips, it's not just the value of coal and oil and gas companies. Uh, once they wake up to climate change risks across the board, we are talking about risk to tourism. Right? We are talking about risk to agriculture. Once you start to incorporate these risks into an economy, the whole, whole idea of climate contagion comes to the fore, because then it ripples through the economy in a dramatic way. And that's when the fear begins, frankly, in the, in the community, because they see it collapsing around them. That's when we as a commission have to intervene and not just encourage investment generically, but we say we want a solar power station built in every major town around the country. We need to have people see what a, a war like mobilisation looks like. And the lessons that the chairman talked about in World War II, that, that they actually went actively into the community and said, give us your pots and pans to melt down to make tanks. Right? Actually grow some food in your backyard. Now that wasn't strategically necessary for the materials, but it was strategically essential to mobilise those communities. And that's why I think we have to think as a commission about that process to really bring people on board in a very practical, economic, job-creating way. Ian? I think the other dimension to that is that if you're moving in that direction, you then have to get away from the parochial approach of saying, well, it's only certain states are doing this. I mean, this becomes a national issue. It's got to be driven nationally. This commission happens to be in the position we've been looking at and others haven't been. But we then need to evolve this into a total national approach and internationally because other people will be exactly the same problems. And if you look at the geopolitical implications for China of what's been happening and Japan itself, and then the one that nobody's talked about, which is India, which is the big growing economy, which has to move off the fossil fuel path, otherwise we can forget about climate change. No. Then you have to start to um, develop an Australian strategy, an, in, an international strategic position, which is quite different from anything we've ever had to face before. Now, I do have to interrupt the chairman and point out there's 11 minutes and 52 seconds until your report has to be delivered. So we, we're going to, we are going to move on, but your point, uh, Ian, about being needing to be national is very well taken, and it turns out that despite the fact that the Commission has been incredibly critical of the recalcitrant nature of Queensland, the moves by China and Japan are sufficient to encourage Queensland and West Australia, Carmen Lawrence, you'll be very pleased about that, to come on board and to support this move by Victoria to put forward a safe climate commission. And this is excellent timing because out of the blue, the Prime Minister calls an early election. He has... He has one eye on the fact that uh, we're going to be going into yet another bushfire season, even though the last one seems like it's not finished yet, but he doesn't want to be campaigning while the country burns. So we're six weeks out from a federal poll. Both major parties are split internally on climate, and it's into that very politically charged atmosphere that you as commissioners release your report. Now, not surprisingly, the recommendation that sort of come out of the blue because they couldn't even agree on 2050, the recommendation for zero emissions by 2010, sorry, in 10 years, by 2030, has actually uh, caused enormous consternation and uproar. The Greens and a number of independents are on board, but you've still got those divisions in the major parties and the climate sceptics are ramping up their campaign. Barnaby Joyce is now leading a coal forever movement. <laughs> now, as commissioners, you have to go on the hustings. You've been asked by all the premiers to go out there and sell your recommendations. Who's 
got the slogan, the best slogan to sell what you want to do. Oliver, I'm going to ask you first. Well, I do like Bob the Builder, and yes, we can. Um, but it is very clear that if we're going to do this transition in 10 years, our biggest problem is we don't have enough people in the country to build what we need to build. So the fear of jobs is irrelevant. We also do need to ask our so green... So that's a selling point, selling that we'll point. actually create jobs, yep. and, jobs. And then the trade is that we do have to ask our green colleagues that we may have to override environmental approvals to drive through transmission lines in a hurry to save the environment. We may have to make some difficult challenges. So we uh, have to go full tilt. Okay, that could be a bit of a double-edged sword, but uh, Carmen, what's your sales campaign and how do you deal with that very obvious point that there's going to have to be some draconian measures here? I mean, you can't do a 10-year approval process if you're trying to get something completed in 10 years. Um, I honestly haven't thought of a slogan and, and I hope that it wouldn't be reduced to such a thing, that we would be able to make the arguments uh, in a coherent way without having to have a three-word slogan. I think that's how we got where we are, to be honest. <laughs> so maybe, maybe a slogan that said, no slogans, think, might be a good way to go. I've got, a, I've got a slogan, it's not three words, but I thought 2030 carbon zero, vote yes, you're a hero. <laughs> Cheryl, what about you? What's your selling point? I, I sort of agree with Carmen. I think we should just ban three-word slogans to start with. And then I think one of the very first wartime emergency measures needs to be to do something about the press in Australia. <laughs> and then we might get the truth out there. But to, to con convince the voters of Australia that they should support these recommendations. I think I'm picking up on what Lydia was saying. I think we need to have words of hope. So I like sort of heal the planet or heal Australia. I think it needs to be something that uh, both tackles the climate but also tackles the, the social element as well. Lydia? Well, Indigenous rights is everyone's rights. Everyone would benefit in this country if we elevated Indigenous rights in this country. Adani got through because our rights were suppressed. The Western Highway Trees is another fight. I mean, if we look around the country, if we had more rights, we wouldn't be facing this climate crisis that we are now. Karen? Well, it's hard, to, it, it's, hard to go past. it's hard to go past this is not a drill, <laughs> because this is not a drill. No. But, uh, you know, wake up your backsides on fires, probably. <laughs> Close to the mark, too. But, uh, but I think whatever we need to do uh, to make sure that people in Australia understand and that any person who is standing for political office in Australia understands that this isn't a drill, this is a climate emergency, and unless we act, there are dire consequences. We are already seeing that. We have had expert after expert telling us that it's not going to get better, it's only going to get worse unless we take this kind of action. And, uh, and I think to pull together uh, expert panels to make sure that, uh, that we are getting the right advice and we listen to the science and we listen to the experts, this is, this is, I think, the way forward. It, it shouldn't just be about vested political interests. It should be about the, the interest of, of 
Australia. Greg? Look, my chairperson is getting angry at me because I've seen the Bureau of Meteorology outlook for this coming bushfire season, so I'm very self-focused with my slogan, beam me up, Scotty. Speak to me, for Christ's sake. Well, Ian, as chair, what, do you, uh, what, what are your parting words to your commission as they go forth to convince the voters and indeed the politicians that your recommendations are the right ones? Well, we need a narrative which is very clear, very simple, to be addressed at all sorts of levels. We all have our responsibilities to go to different areas to basically do this, and some sort of slogan that says, no more open minds, just action which basically focuses on getting that story across. And um, that is something that I think has been done in the past. We've seen it happen in places like South Africa, for example, where the transformation from apartheid took place without conflict. And one of the critical reasons of doing it is there was a very simple story that said, there are four different options from the way we go forward. If we take this one, this one, and this one, we're in trouble. If we take this one, we have a chance of solving it. We need something like that. We need some very simple pictures of the choice. And that has to be sold, I think, by not just this commission, but by uh, leaders of all levels in the business community and elsewhere. And that will be something, something like that is what we'll end up having to do. Well, you are very busy on the hustings. It's an absolutely exhausting election campaign for all of you, a job that you maybe didn't anticipate when you first agreed to join this special commission. But then on the very eve of this election, the leader of the Greens, two ALP frontbenchers, the climate minister and the treasurer, they hold an extraordinary media conference on the front lawns of Parliament House in Canberra, and they argue that decades of partisan politics on climate must end, and they pledge to work together in a government of national unity around your recommendations. It's only two from Labor, two from the Coalition, and the leader of the Greens. They say what they've got to say, turn their phones off, and go to the pub. The day after this extraordinary media event, Australians go to the polls. At 6 p.m., the votes are starting to be counted. Anthony Green's computer seizes, you can hear him muttering under his breath, and the numbers finally start to roll in, and the results are extraordinary. And that's where we leave our hypothetical. <laughs> Please join me in thanking our panel. Thank you, Ali. Wow, what an insightful, practical and entertaining event we had the pleasure of experiencing tonight. And the only thing missing for me was the commitment for this very talented panel to start work together with the genius Ali Moore keeping them in check. <laughs> so thank you again. Thank you.
So we have a full program with the National Climate Emergency Summit uh, beginning again tomorrow at 9am. So we look forward to seeing all of you there, uh, contributing, listening, again, bringing your ideas. So have a great sleep and come energised tomorrow. Thank you again. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. 